Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Mike Salitro. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Parrish Collins. Parrish is a civil rights attorney in Albuquerque who's focused on prisoner, medical, and nutritional abuse and neglect cases. Parrish, welcome. We are really excited to be speaking with you. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, we wanted to start here. You have quite a uh, impressive uh, tenure in in law practice, but you've got also a very specific niche that you are uh, currently focused on. How how did you come upon that? As this is where I want to focus my my time professionally, and these are the kind of cases that are most important to me. And you're referring to the prison medical. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well. Um... Yeah, I don't want to get into politics, but, um, you know, Jeff Sessions was appointed attorney general. And, you know, I didn't think he was going to be particularly friendly towards civil rights. And and uh, anyway, I thought I should do a few civil rights cases. And I uh, took a solitary confinement, uh, continuing legal education course. And, and you know, I was looking at it as medical neglect. And anyway, so I uh, somehow I got it. A call from a, a prisoner, and yeah, you know, I, you know, he he had a pretty crazy story about a pressure ulcer that was the size of a grapefruit, and you know, um, I I thought he was exaggerating, but I yeah, you know, I wanted to go see him just to see, so I you know, I fought like you know, I fought pretty hard to get a camera in, which is not easy to do to get a camera into a prison, so I went out there to document the injuries, and yeah, you know, the the pressure ulcer that he had was pretty horrifying. And uh, if anything, he had understated it. And from there, I started getting more and more calls and uh, and the level of cruelty and abuse and neglect is, is, is astonishing. It's nothing I could have imagined. And so since taking that first case, the first couple of cases, it's grown into basically an obsession it's all i do now it's all our other my wife works with me she doesn't do these kinds of cases but um yeah i have a staff of you know young you know paralegals young uh law clerks and legal assistants and and we're all working on uh the prison medical and and then we work on nutritional issues as well but We've actually, I think we've only filed two cases regarding the food, but it's something we want to turn our sights on. Uh, we just kind of have our hands full a little bit, but the food is, uh, it's, it's pretty appalling stuff. It's, you know, if you're not, you know, what I, it's pretty much all carbs, three, three meals a day. So if you have diabetes, you're probably not going to do well. You, you may end up losing you know, body parts, you may end up dying. If, if you don't have diabetes going in and you have a propensity to diabetes, you're going to have diabetes when you leave. And because uh, the food is just absolutely toxic for someone with diabetes or heart conditions or anything of that nature. So we really need to, you know, start looking into that more. We just, you know, have our hands full with the medical issues. Okay. And as you describe that, you, you mentioned starting with a CE or a continuing education course is kind of the introduction into this world. Did you have any idea that there was this much um, 
I guess, abuse or, or neglect in this space? Or what was your thinking going into that course? And, and obviously where you are now, having multiple cases, multiple years uh, in, in this space. Well, when I took that course, you know, I took it, you know, um, well, because a guy that I really like, you know, he's, he's a really good civil rights lawyer, was teaching it. And, uh, you know, and I basically needed credits. It was at the end of the year. <laughs> so it looked interesting and I took it. And then, yeah, I was trying to figure out what kind of, you know, work I could do in civil rights. And so that kind of, it just clicked. And uh, so, but no, I had no idea. You know, I uh, could not have imagined the the level of neglect. And, you know, we've followed 60 or so, so far. We have, you know, I have quite a few on my desk that I need to get filed. We could have followed two or 300 by now. It is, it is absolutely uh yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I've started telling people if it's medical and it's prison, it's prison, it's uh medical malpractice. And, uh, yeah, and I, I, that might be a slight exaggeration, but not much. You know, it's the, the, the cases that we have are pretty horrific negligence where people, you know, uh, men and women have, um, you know, they might have an, start showing signs of an infection, complaining of pain and so forth. And, you know, this can go on to the point, you know, for weeks, months where they, you know, it's just getting progressively worse. They're getting weak. They're getting, you know, they're throwing up. They can't get out of bed. They can't walk, you know, and they're uh, in horrible pain. And uh, they don't get sent to the hospital and they don't get sent out for proper care. And the the prisons don't have the the wherewithal to treat these infections or, or if they do, then it's even worse. But I, I just don't think they have the the capability of treating them. But um, so what we end up having a lot of our cases involve these infections that could have been easily managed, easily treated. They end up getting to, into the spines and hearts, and and we have one that got into the brain of one of our clients. And uh, you know, quite a few of those people have died. Most of them don't die, but they, they're facing lifetime, you know, disability, you know, you know, pretty significant spine damage or, or heart damage. And, and, you know, what the worst part is, uh, well, I mean, there's so many bad parts of it, you know, that they just watch these guys deteriorate to the point where they can't get out of bed to go to the bathroom. So they have to get help from, you know, people in the, the pod, you know, or the, their cell to use the bathroom, which is, you know, not a good thing to have to do in a prison environment. They can't get, the, they can't get food. Other inmates are wheeling them down to medical saying, you know, this guy needs help. There are occasions with even when even guards are wheeling them down saying this guy needs help. And they stand, still can't get help. And then finally they get sent to the hospital when they're on the brink of death and, and uh, that's when we get them. And uh, and those are those are our cases. I mean, we we do have quite a few suicide cases with severely mentally ill uh, prisoners that you know weren't properly monitored, weren't properly treated, weren't provide uh, mental health services or you know proper medication. And uh, but the great majority of our cases are are infections that got out of control. That had they been addressed in a competent, timely manner would have never got to the point where these guys were hospitalized. So it's, um, 
Yeah, no, I could have never expected that level of kind of indifference and cruelty from from uh, medical people. Yeah, I, you just don't expect that. And and you heard, uh, you know, I actually kind of lost it recently in a mediation. The uh, the mediator was a re- retired judge, and he came in. Our our client was deceased, and um, you know, the son was there, and the mediator came in and and pretty much the first thing he said is, you know, to the to the son, you know, there's a lot of problems with this case. You know, you know your son was a drug addict was a drug addict. And uh and I lost it. You know, and, and that's and the reason being is because that's how they're treated by the medical people. They're not treated like patients. They're treated like prisoners and drug addicts. And and that needs to change. And we're doing what we can to change that because they're people. You know, a lot of them have, you know, if you ever read the demographics on the prison population, huge rate of learning disabilities, huge rate of dyslexia, you know, uh, and 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 pretty much, you know, I think it's well over 80% have some kind of mental health issues. And uh, so, you know, plus they come from poverty, they come from bad environments, they come from schools that didn't, you know, help them with their learning disabilities. So, you know, they have a, you know, they're kind of like two strikes coming out of the gate and it's just one more strike and they end up in prison. So they're the most vulnerable people in society. And and you, I mean, you kind of get this ideal that the guards are abusive or maybe the dangers of the prisoners, but that's not what I found. The guards, you know, I actually like for the most part, there's some bad guards, but, um, you know, that's, there's some bad lawyers, you know, and they're bad, you know, realtors, bad doctors, bad this and that. But um, for the most part, the guards are just trying to do their job, but I never would have expected this kind of treatment from medical personnel. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's shocking to say the least. Yeah, it's as you talk about it, it's it's shocking, it's it's disappointing, it's it's really disheartening. But what comes across is your passion for this case, for or for these cases, for your clients, for the for the simple vision that these are human beings and they should be treated. So, uh, so you started off by describing this has turned into an obsession for you. And when we first talked, and and even tonight, you, it, it's clear of why this kind of resonates with what you've done, why why it makes sense for you to, to represent uh, your clients in these cases. Um, given, given their background and given their uh, limited resources, especially in, in prison, how are they finding you or how are they contacting you or how are you becoming aware of these situations? Well, like I said, we got those first few calls and then, um, and then, you know, there's some word of mouth, you know, there's not very many lawyers that will take a call from a prisoner and very and even fewer that will actually take a case. So there's not a big population of lawyers that are willing to take these cases. There are some, but not a whole lot. And then what was really interesting or funny, I get a kick out of this. Um, you know, when COVID started, you know, they they wouldn't let us visit the prisoners. You know, they wouldn't let us at the anyone in the prisons or jails here for quite a while. You know, because of COVID, you know, and they, they had a good basis for that. You know, it was, it was, you know, it was obviously dangerous. And these, these prisoners were at pretty high risk, as were the guards. And uh, so 
they finally let me back in in March and I went in and, you know, I always talk to the guards. Like I said, I like them, you know, there's just guys or women, you know, just trying to do their jobs and, you know, in a tough situation, poorly paid, poorly trained, understaffed, you know, the, the whole bit, and that's a whole nother conversation. But, um, so I go in and I talk to this young guard on the way back. There are no masks. There's no uh, hand sanitizer or anything. And I'm going back to take a picture again of the guy with the pressure holster. And they won't let me in medical anymore because I always end up with a lawsuit when I leave there. And uh, so they took me to it's you know the attorney visitation area. And there's called Sally Port. You know, and that's like, I'm sure you've kind of seen them in TV shows or something. There's like... It's a little room and there's a locking door on either side. You know, you go in, the door locks behind you, then you have to wait a little bit and then the next door opens and then you get into the attorney visitation room. So they came in and set up a makeshift bed and and came in, you know, the medical people, the guards, you know, okay, you know, I don't know, there's probably five or six people in that little room and uh, they take his bandages off. You know, no one has on masks, no one has on gloves. And I and I'd asked the the guard on the way back. I said, "Hey, I noticed there's no hand sanitizer or whatever. What are you guys doing about COVID?" He said, "Well, we had a, a meeting. You know, it was like yesterday or you know recent meeting." And he said, uh, "It's a joke. We're not doing anything." So I go back and I send a letter to the the prison, to the sections, the governor, you know, and and the press, and I pointed out, you know, that they they weren't taking precautions. The the reporter printed the letter and then I started getting calls from another prison where a lot of our cases come out of and um, they weren't taking any, I mean, it was, the conditions were, you know, it was almost like they were trying to breed COVID, you know, the way they were managing this prison. So I sent a, a second letter on behalf of 37 inmates and same thing, secretary of corrections, warden, you know, department of corrections, uh, governor, and the same reporter, he published it again. And then it was funny, someone out at the prison where my, my guy was with the pressure ulcer put up a sign saying that, that uh, our firm was responsible for distributing COVID funds to all the prisoners in the state. And so we were just getting, you know, overwhelmed with phone calls and we talked to every single one of them and and uh you know we'd say well we're not doing that but how's your health you know anything going on and uh and then they put up a second flyer saying we were getting all these prisoners out on compassionate release you know for medical reasons so we got another wave of calls same thing you know i was just like well we can't you know that's not possible but how's your health and uh we probably got 30 40 cases out of it so it's the best free marketing ever, and it came from the Department of Corrections. So you know, I always like to give them a shout out for the free marketing. And uh, anyway, so every, you know, a lot of the a lot of the prisoners know me now because of that. And plus, we filed sixty suits. You know, we get you know a little bit of press you know around the state, and and we we talk to them. You know, we talk to them like human beings. I go visit them if I can, and we treat them like people, you know, and I've had one of my clients, I went out to see him and they never tell the prisoner, you know, that the lawyers come and they say it's security. I think it, 
I think it's because they don't want the prisoner to take the legal file. You know, and then and then once you're there, you can't say, hey, go back to your cell and get your legal file. So a lot of times I get there and there's no legal file. And uh, and I think that's by design. But I got there and he's the guy's just like, who are you? And I said, I'm your lawyer. And he burst into tears. And he said, you're the first person to come visit me in three years. And uh, so we treat them with dignity and respect. And I like them. You know, um, you know there's some of them that done some pretty bad things but you know you sh- i mean you shouldn't be judged by your worst day and the fact is a lot of them like i said mental health issues learning disabilities you know uh and drugs are huge so almost you know most of our clients have you know drug related charges you know it may not be trafficking but it may be burglary you know related to the need to get drugs and so I think they appreciate that our, our firm, you know, really cares about them and we treat them like people when when that's unfortunately not always the case and you know how how they're treated. Yeah, I mean you put it in a way that it's very difficult to argue, regardless of where you are politically, where you where your personal thoughts are, that treating fellow human beings as as human beings as such with dignity with respect is the is the starting point that should be our baseline and that's the level of care and the level of respect where, where we should start um and and I know we had talked about this before but besides that there's a there's financial implications for other for other for taxpayers who may not be uh, you can say well that's that's fine but this doesn't concern me i don't have relatives i don't have friends in that world so I, I shouldn't be bothered with this but why why should why should kind of everybody open their eyes to see the situation why is this important to to more people than are kind of aware of what's going on right now okay um yeah it does implicate taxpayers and uh yeah and i you know i have had some really awful cases that have been in the press and and people are like, oh, my gosh, you know, that was an awful case. And that's kind of the first thing. But then they turn the page, you know, and then they don't. And like you said, it doesn't really affect them. And even if it did, you know, where do you start? You know, so that that's part of it. You know, like what's an individual supposed to do? And uh, but here's the here's the financial. The contracts are massive. You know, the and and New Mexico, the the current contractors get paid 70, 80 million a year. And uh and we only have like five thousand inmates in the whole state. And uh, you know, there's a one of the there's a contract that used to be in the state that got a one point four billion dollar contract in Missouri. And uh so that's the baseline. But then the way the contract's written here, and I have no reason to expect it's written differently in any other state, is uh if if a say one of these contractors if you know there's a brewing infection you know one of our cases there's a brewing infection and they need to send them out for an MRI or CT scan or or tissue sampling or something like that they don't have capability on site at the prisons to do that if they send them out they have to pay the full cost of that and uh so they don't send them out but if that same inmate a month later is on the brink of death, needs to go to the hospital, they send them to the hospital, they get checked in for 24 hours or more, Medicaid picks up the bill. So that's level two. 
So, you know, if the person dies, you know, at that point, the taxpayers are kind of off the hook. But a lot of these guys are young, you know, 20s, 30s, you know, 40s max. You know, every now and then we get people older than that. But they may live another 20, 30, 40 years. They have permanent spine damage, permanent heart damage. They're missing limbs. You know, so they're going to have permanent, you know, lifetime medical care again at the cost of Medicaid. That's strike three for, for taxpayers. And that ain't it because most of these guys did manual labor. And even if they hadn't, even if they had been an investment banker, you know, coming out of prison, you don't have a lot of job options. You're probably going to be working in manual labor. You know, so, and they can't do that because you can't do manual labor if you, you're missing limbs, you have a permanently damaged spine, a permanently damaged heart. That's, you know, that's more in strike three and that's strike four for taxpayers. And then, uh, so there's, you know, and then there's other things that I, you know, probably not addressing, but those costs mount up. And since privatized medical care went into the prisons and the, you know, it started in the early nineties or started gaining ground, you know, uh, imagine what those costs are. You know, there are prisoners probably from 1990 that, you know, suffered injuries from lack of medical care that are still on Medicaid, you know, and still getting medical care for a damaged spine or a damaged heart. And so, and no one has ever made that calculation. And for the life of me, I don't know why the states, the counties, or the feds don't say, hey, wait a second, you know, this is really expensive. You know, this ain't 140, you know, this isn't 1.4 billion. This is a probably hundreds of billions over the you know span of time and no one you know no one has studied that and we're trying to get to the bottom of it here but you know it's me you know I'm a lo one lawyer and a staff and then we do co-counsel with some other firms here but you know it's uh it's not easy getting information from the prisons or their contractors it's you know, it's a slugfest. I mean, you have to fight over every scrap of paper and, and we do, but, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, you got to fight for every ounce of evidence and every, every document. And so we're trying to unravel all that. And, but yeah, you know, I don't think unless, unless the legislature gets involved, well, you know, uh, taxpayers will never know the true cost of these medical contracts. So I, I don't know. I kind of ramble a little bit. I hope I answered your question. And I think you addressed it from plenty of different angles, why it would make sense for the average taxpayer, the average person to have a vested interest to know what's going on in, in their prison. Because even if even if it doesn't connect to them on a human level, that there's a there's a financial uh, incentive or there's a financial reason that uh, will impact them. Um, one thing that really has struck me as, as you talk about uh, talk about these situations is when we, when we discuss infections, a lot of that seems like if proper precautions are taken, that you can avoid a lot of that situation. And that this seems like a very systemic issue that if there were changes made uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a systemic level that you could maybe avoid, if not all of this, most of these uh, traumatic outcomes. Is there anything that you have seen in the last few years uh, on, a, on a scale that you would say, if we just did A, B, or C, or put this one thing into place, we could avoid a lot of these headaches, a lot of these terrible situations, these terrible outcomes for these prisoners? Well, there's a few things like, you know, my, the local jail here has a just 
hor- horrible track record over the you know since 2019. There have been a couple of contractors go through there. There have been you know well over 20 deaths during that period. And the University of New Mexico is taking over medical care next month. And I'm really optimistic about that. And so my, you know, I think it would be great if universities around the country take over medical in the prisons because, uh, you know, they may mess up now and then, but it's not going to rise to the level of civil rights violations where they're deliberately denying care to people and they're refusing to to do a CT scan or a tissue sample or or something pretty nominal to determine to determine whether these, you know, these infection, the infection is there and if it's getting worse and then provide the proper antibiotic therapy to make sure that it's managed and, you know, it doesn't grow into a, a life-threatening infection. The other thing is uh, they could actually, you know, send the people out and, and not go through corporate approvals, you know, to send a, a, a prisoner out for, you know, a CT scan or an MRI or something like that because they're trying to save on cost. But that's not how it ha- happens. You know, they, they have these, it's called utilization review. And, uh, you know, the doctors on site, have, you know, even if they want to send a guy to the ER, you know, they can't do that without, well, the ER, I think they can if the guy's on the brink of death, but if it's like for a CT scan or MRI or tissue sample, they have to go through a corporate approval process that doesn't necessarily even involve medical, medically trained personnel. You know, it's like an insurance model, you know, where you put the stuff in and, you know, it's kind of, I, I think it's like insurance comp- health insurance companies, you know, they have their algorithms that are designed to deny coverage. And I think, you know, there's a lot of that. So you get rid of that, you know, make give the on-site medical personnel the ability to send people out, do proper testing, and without corporate, you know, accountants or whoever's making these decisions to intervene and stop the referral. And then I'll give you a really good example. They could stop slashing costs. And we have a couple of suicide cases from the, or not suicide cases, detox cases from the local jail here. And well, we have four death cases and uh, no one should ever die of detox. You know, you die from detox, from dehydration, and then you have heart failure. And uh, the, the, there's current contractor that's on its way out and UNM is coming in. And then there was a prior contractor that came in. The prior contractor, you know, got rid of the paramedics, got rid of the EMTs, got rid of epinephrine, which is the most important tool in the, you know, tool chest when you're dealing with an inmate that's crashing and detox. And, you know, it gets their heart going again. And epinephrine, you know, I don't know what it costs. It probably costs a couple of bucks at that level. And uh, they discontinued epinephrine. And then, and we have testimony from the medical people on that. And then uh, even if they did have epinephrine, they didn't have EMTs or paramedics that were trained to administer the epinephrine. My daughter's had an an EpiPen since she was five. And so, you know, you give an EpiPen to a five-year-old syndrome kindergarten, but you can't administer epinephrine when there's an inmate crashing and detox. And consequently, you know, they've had 
Well, I, I don't know for sure because we, we, you know, it's not easy. Like I said, getting these numbers, but they've had, you know, at least twenty-three deaths at that jail, and quite a few of those have been detox deaths. So, um, and that's cost-related. They don't want to pay for the paramedics. They don't want to pay for the MTs. They don't want to pay for even epinephrine. And then, uh, and, and then that was continued <clears throat> with the the successor you know medical provider who's leaving now and uh but it just got worse you know so um you know it's it's you know get rid of the profit i guess the long and short of it is get rid of the profit motive and you know prison medical care you know because it's all profit driven entirely and and you know these are massive companies you know Around 500 million, a billion, you know, some of them owned by private equity firms or hedge funds. And, uh, you know, it's totally profit driven. And, and, you know, and, and when you have a profit driven medical care system and you're dealing with extremely vulnerable people that have no voice, you just assume you're going to get away with it. And uh, as far as I know, no one, definitely not in this state, has ever gone after them on the scale that we've gone after them because uh you know and we're not stopping until they change until they either improve their their practices or they get out of the business and i don't care which but you know one way or another they're either going to start doing their jobs or you know it's going to be very costly for them i mean when you put it in those terms that just taking taking care of other humans and then people who are in power positions of power and or control just to do what they are hired, what they are paid to do. Uh, it doesn't seem all that difficult, but uh, you know, I, I can tell as you talk about this, I could easily ask you questions for another 30 minutes, if not longer uh, because of, because of your passion, because of your uh, conviction and your commitment to this, uh, but we are coming up on time. So I'll, I'll kind of change you <laughs> for a moment as we wrap up. Um, I know for most of us, when we do something a little different, go someplace for the first time, it can stick with us, or we have a, a picture in our mind what it's like. Even before uh, you know, you started working on these cases, do you remember the first time you walked into a prison? Were you nervous at all? What was that like? And what was your first uh, your first encounter with uh, with the, with the jail, if you can remember as a lawyer? Well, I re well the first time I got into a prison was when I started doing this work and. Uh, to be honest, you know, I was worried about the inmates. You know, I, you know, when you, you know, you're walking toward a, you know, a row, you know, they walk in rows basically or columns and you're walking toward them and, you know, you have these uh, preconceptions about what prisoners are like. You know, I'm, you know, I was worried about that, but, uh, you know, not anymore. You know, uh, now I, you know, worry a little bit more about, the administration and uh you know you know like for instance i got you know i went in that you know that same inmate with the pressure ulcer i took my camera in. he says his uh his sore was oozing so i you know i wanted to take pictures they wouldn't take let me take pictures and then anyway they uh they called the gang unit and uh, the gang unit came to escort me out. And then they filed a bunch of false reports saying that I threatened them and just all kinds of nonsense. And these are big dudes, you know, they're, I mean, they're like paramilitary guys. And uh, there's like seven or eight of these guys to escort me out of the prison. 
And then, you know, I'm just like huffing, you know, huffing and puffing, trying to get to the front office because, you know, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to get my ass whipped. And uh, and then they had two cars escort me from the parking lot out the front gate. It was just the craziest thing. So after that, ever since then, I've taken a witness. You know, I take someone from my office to be there as a witness. And, uh, you know, so the, the, the prisoners, you know, don't bother me. The guards don't really bother me. But, you know, when the administration pipes in and says, don't let him take pictures, which is what I think happened. And then they send, send in the gang unit. Yeah, because it wasn't the guard that escorted me back there. He was perfectly nice, you know, and I think he was probably surprised. But, you know, they send in the gang unit or this, you know, the serious threat intelligence unit, as they call it, and uh, have me escorted. You know, that was, uh, yeah, that caused me a little concern. But, you know, now I have a witness and, you know, what are you going to do? I'm not going to stop going to see them. They need, you know, I need to see them. I need to see if they're injured. You know, I need to take pictures if they do have injuries. And, uh, so you know, I'll just keep doing my job, but that's um, that's that's it, really. That's a that's that's a good story in terms of something to tell. Maybe not uh, not all that good for you in the moment, but um, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, as you wrap up, Parrish, is there anything I didn't ask you that I probably should have? Um, let me think. Yeah, you know, I I guess you know, how can people help? Which I would say. You know, contact your legislators, you know, demand that they study the true cost of prisons and jails, you know, prisons in the state and jails in whatever county they're in, because uh, they're, they don't know the true cost. And I think if they knew the true cost and knew that every paycheck, there was, you know, was, you know possibly a significant amount coming out of their paycheck to pay for this, you know, I think you know, people would be, you know, a little bit more attentive. So I would say, write your legislators and say, you know, get, you know, get control over this and, and study the cost, you know, as a taxpayer, I, I deserve, and I have a right to know where my tax dollars are going. And I want, <clears throat> you know, this, the state and the state and the counties need to study this. So that's what I would suggest. Just, you know, assert your rights as a taxpayer because, uh, you know, this money could be going elsewhere. It could be going to schools. You know, it could be going to private medical health care. It could be going all over the place, but it's being squandered in the prisons. And and it's not right. And the, the corrections departments in states, you know, typically have some of the largest budgets in the state. And uh, so, you know, that money could be better utilized elsewhere, maybe even mental health care. You know, that sounds crazy, but why not, you know, put some of that toward private, you know, medical or mental health care out in the community because they're not getting it once they get to prison and, uh, you know, and, and schools, you know, the things that are important and and not, you know, to lie in a massive corporation's pockets. That's what that's what I would say. I'm really glad you put that in there. It doesn't sound crazy at all when you kind of have that one line takeaway that this money doesn't need to be squandered. There are better uses for it. And at the very least, we can all agree on that, that, you know, there's no reason for the situation that these, these people are in and there are better ways that these systems can be run and the resources can be better allocated to, to either prevent the situation altogether 
and on top of that can be put at other other places for better uses. Uh, Parish, if our listeners want to uh, connect with you, want to learn more, where can they do that? Well, we started a nonprofit. The website's not up yet. It's called prisonlights.org. So that should be up in the next week or so. And then uh, I think you have my link to all the cases we filed in your show notes. And uh, and then, uh, you know, they can contact me through my website. or uh, But I would you know, encourage them to keep an eye out for prison lights because the whole premise of that nonprofit is to shine a light on, you know, prisons, you know, and how it's, a, you know, the, the prison medical care in particular, but, you know, that's kind of our first challenge, medical care, but then, you know, we're going to be addressing other issues as well. One of those issues is cost. You know, I want to unwrap, you know, if no one else is going to do it, then we want to do our best to kind of figure out what is this costing us? And uh, I can tell you, my gut feeling is it's, you know, it's, uh, it's not billions. It's, it's much higher than that. So, and anyway, so prisonlights.org and then otherwise, you know, you can see, you know, I, I don't have all the cases we filed on that link on my uh, website. I just haven't had time to get them up there, but you know, it'll give you a sampling of the kind of issues we're seeing and, and they just keep coming and coming and coming. There's no change. It's remarkable as many times as we've sued them and they, it just seems to get worse and worse and worse. It's almost like they're taking, you know, they, you know, it's just like, all right, you sued me. Just wait till you see this. And then, and then we have to sue them again. And it's just, it's, it's uh, insanity. But, you know, if, if that's what they want to do, I'm glad to keep suing them. So. Well, I mean, they, you certainly are the right man for this job because you have the the passion and you have the commitment to, to see it through. So I, I will post all of those links you discuss in the show notes. Uh, listeners, please reach out to your legislators with, with your thoughts at the very least with, with the cost. This is something that we all should have a better awareness of. Uh, and Parrish, thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, this has been a good talk. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. appreciate your interest in this topic. Uh, I really appreciate it.